Today's podcast is sponsored by the 2022 Westminster Conference, September 9th and 10th. Register now online at rpts.edu slash events. And there's more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Modification of Spin. I'm your host, Carl Truman, and I'm here with my regular colleague, Bob Pruitt. Uh, I am Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at the beautiful Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Todd is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Still part of the PCA, I believe, Todd. We're still hanging in there. Um, with a skinnier teeth. Well, you know, we've had a couple of, of good general assemblies, but I keep I keep in mind what you told me years ago, Carl that a man without enemies is a man without honor. And so that's <laughs> helped, that's helped me uh, uh, sur- survive um, in the PCA. So it's all My good. head of department just sent me a text about 10 minutes ago and said, mm-hmm. do you have any friends left these days? And my <laughs> only comment was, can you give me time to look that up in the dictionary and I'll let you know <laughs> later on. So, anyway, yeah. I'm delighted actually to say today I'm, I'm on the podcast, not just with one friend, Todd Pruitt, but with another friend, um, a gentleman who's had a, huge impact uh, on my thinking about a lot of uh, pressing issues in contemporary culture, uh, and no, none more so than abortion. Uh, he is Francis Beckwith. He is the professor of philosophy and church-state studies at the great Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and we've asked him to join the program today to uh, help us and our Listeners, understand in more depth uh, what's happened relative to the overthrowing of Roe v. Wade and the recent Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court of the United States. And just uh, before I finish my intro, I also want to say about uh, Frank uh, two things. One, he is the greatest mimic of presidents of the United States I've ever come (laughs) across. More importantly, though, he has written uh, a book, I think it's over a decade old now, uh, for Cambridge University Press, Defending Life which is, I think, the definitive, or from my limited reading this ed, the definitive scholarly uh, treatment of the pro-life position. It's written by a scholar, but Frank writes with great lucidity that even somebody like myself, who's not legal or philosophical in background, was able to read it and, uh, 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 and benefit tremendously from it. So I want to commend that book to our listeners and say, welcome, Frank. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Well, thank you for for having me. Uh, as far as presidents, I I, <laughs> I I I can't really do Trump. Uh, oh. or, uh, <laughs> I still can do Bill Clinton. <laughs> I feel your pain. I really do. We probably don't have any listeners who remember Bill Clinton. Yeah, or, or, or even Ronald Reagan, yeah. right? Yes. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. <laughs> You know, at Grove City College, we have kids walking around with T-shirts with 
Reagan Bush 80 on. Grove has to be a unique college in the United States. That was the first election I voted in. Mm. Wow. Wow. And and I I voted for Jimmy Carter. Oh, bless your uh, heart. Wow. In 84, I I did vote for Reagan, but I, I was somebody that was really like Jimmy Carter. And of course, it turns out that I was wrong. <laughs> you you were going to give him another try, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Paul wants to say to you guys, you know, how is this choosing your own head of state thing going for you? you know, <laughs> at least while the Queen's alive, I yeah. can say to my kids, my granddaughter, look, look at my head of state. Be mm-hmm. like her when you grow yeah. up. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, you've had a few prime ministers be. that. Uh, yeah, but they're not head of state. They're. They're well, public people. We get rid of them regularly. <laughs> <laughs> we get rid of our presidents regularly, yeah, too. So. That's very mm-hmm. true. So anyway, Frank, uh, Roe v. Wade, Dobbs case. I wonder if you could talk us through, uh, maybe give for some of our listeners who, they probably heard Roe v. Wade, but they, yeah. they probably never know the legal grounds upon which it was argued. They're rather interesting. In, you know, It was yeah. not really directly in a, a sort of a abortion logic lay behind it maybe you could just briefly summarize the logic behind roe v wade and then give our readers some kind of idea as to why it was so vulnerable and why in fact it has now been overturned in the in the dobbs decision sure so roe v wade was a case involving a texas statute uh, involving abortion it was a it, it was a statute that was not unlike those in, I think at the time, almost 45 of the states had uh, prohibited abortion in all cases except for life of the mother. And there were a few that allowed rape and incest exceptions and severe fetal deformity. So the case uh, eventually makes its way to the Supreme Court. There was a woman uh, who was under a pseudonym, Jane Roe. Uh, Her real name was Norma McCorvey. Uh, She challenged the statute and winds up winning ultimately in the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade. Now, what makes Roe v. Wade so controversial is that the court says it finds a right to abortion as a constitutional right from something called the right of privacy. Now, the right of privacy comes from a case in 1965 called Griswold v. Connecticut. That That was a case about a Connecticut statute that banned contraception. And the court said that uh, the fact they banned it, uh, so, so that it banned it in terms of uh, all people, but it was a married couple that challenged challenged the law. So the court says in, in Grizzle versus Connecticut, there's a right to privacy that is implied by certain uh, amendments of the Constitution like the 14th Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and they, they said that, it, that it's not explicitly stated, but it's an emanation from the penumbras of these uh, parts of the con- these different amendments in the Constitution. So the court winds up establishing a right to use contraception within the confines of marriage. But then another case arises in the early 70s called Eisenstadt versus Baird involving a Massachusetts statute or to, uh, that forbids it for unmarried couples. And Justice Brennan says, well, if clearly if the right applies to a married couple, it stands to reason it should be extended to unmarried individuals because the only reason why you would want 
to do that, to prohibit it is because you have moral reasons and the court can't really, you know, the privacy protects that. So then by the time we get to Roe v. Wade, you've already established a kind of right to reproduction or right to control one's reproduction, if you want to use modern language. So the court, though, has a problem. And the problem is that unlike contraception, abortion involves a third party, namely the, the unborn child. So Texas argued that their statute was, in, was put in place in order to protect unborn human life. And so Justice um, Blackman, who writes the majority in, in Roe, says, well, I've looked in the Constitution and unborn children are not identified as persons. Um, and the 14th Amendment was passed at a, in 1868. And sure, there were a lot of anti-abortion statutes at the time, but the purpose of those statutes wasn't to protect unborn children. Its primary purpose was to protect women from dangerous operations. Now that abortion is relatively safe, the purpose of those statutes is eradicated. And besides, uh, in common law, there were very few, if any, prosecutions for women that had uh, terminated their pregnancies prior to uh, quickening. Quickening is the time in which the fetus can first be felt. So therefore, there is a right to abortion in the Constitution. So uh, the reasoning is part of something called, uh, and some of your listeners may have heard this term in the past month or so, called substantive due process. So there's this provision in the 14th Amendment that says, and it's also in the Fifth Amendment, that uh, one's life, liberty, or property cannot be taken from them without due process of law. And what the court has said is that that can't just mean right procedure, because you could imagine a legislature, let's say, banning marriage <laughs> or allowing, let's say, um, parents to kill their children before the age of 10. <laughs> right. And so there, there has to be some rights that are unenumerated, mm -hmm. that are presupposed by the Constitution. And so, so the, and it's called substantive due process because they're taking that due process clause and saying that there are some substantial rights that are behind that process. And that gets really controversial because every justice, regardless of whether they're liberal or conservative or in between, believes that there are unenumerated rights. Right. So how do you figure out what are the unenumerated rights? And some justices like Justice Alito, who wrote the majority in Dobbs, says you figure this out by looking at the nation's traditions in history. And there is no right to abortion in the nation's traditions in history. So therefore, it's not an unenumerated right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of row in a nutshell. Yeah. And that's why that's why so many people, even on the left, have known and have worried about the fact that Roe is is legally on, on shaky ground. I mean. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of all people, knew that Roe was vulnerable from a legal standpoint because it's founded upon an unnamed right, founded upon another unnamed right. That, that's um, correct. In the Constitution. So there's one other thing I do want to mention about Roe that, that I neglected to say, and that is that Justice Blackman puts in place 
uh, what is sometimes called the trimester breakdown. So he, he, he can't actually say the state has no interest in the fetus. That just would be too much. So he says that as the fetus develops, as the unborn child develops, the state's interest increase until the point of viability. There, the state's interests become, or the fetus's interests become so paramount, the state can restrict abortion after viability, but it has to allow for an exception uh, based on the health or life of the mother. And many scholars, and I've made this argument in my book, that the health exception winds up including virtually everything, right. uh, mental health, familial health, and so forth. So it's that the viability uh, marker is important because the way in which Blackman justifies it is by a perfectly circular argument. He says that we know viability is the time at which the state's interests uh, are paramount or increase um, exponentially because that's when the fetus can live on its own, which of course is what viability is. Right. Right. So he basically is, I think it's um, uh, John Hart Eli in a very famous critique of Roe. Uh, by a pro, he was pro-choice, but thought Roe was badly reasoned. He says that uh, that Blackman confuses a definition for a syllogism, hmm. meaning that he just simply, you know, is taking what viability is as the criteria to determine whether that's when the state can actually protect unborn human beings. Yeah, yeah. So for those of us that are, that are pro-life, and actually, I, I have no problem with the nomenclature of anti-abortion. Um, um, I, I, I don't think that being against abortion requires one to also have a whole other list of justifications for being against yeah. killing babies in the womb. But for those of us that are pro-life or anti-abortion, obviously, we were very happy about the reversal of Roe versus Wade. I think a lot of us did not expect to ever see that in our lifetime. So we were very happy about it. I wonder if you could just explain briefly what does happen now because of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, but yeah, but now, but what doesn't happen? I mean, obviously, there's sure. there's things that we celebrate, but it, it's not like this is some sort of a slam dunk. So, what ground was gained, and what hasn't changed since then? Sure. So, in 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 Dobson uh, versus versus Jackson Health Center, I think that's the, the name of the uh, the other party. Um, what the court did there was simply reverse Roe v. Wade, which which and also another case which I had not mentioned that's Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. That's a case that winds up upholding the right to abortion, but guts a lot of Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, and and there's a lot of technical legal stuff in that. But uh, to make a long story short, basically the court overturns both uh, Casey, which was the 1992 case, and, and Roe v. Wade. So all that it does. All that the court has done there is send the issue back to the states mm-hmm. by saying that there is no constitutional right to abortion. All the court is saying is that now the states can legislate on it. Yeah. And so what you're going to get in some places like California and New York, uh, states that are very blue states, that is very liberal, progressive states, you, you actually already have on the books laws that liberalize abortion. And, and I think wrote. New York actually goes further than Roe v. Wade in, mm-hmm. in its liberalization. Other states like my state, uh, Texas, likelihood of greater restrictions. In fact, Texas last year passed a, a law that uh, prohibited abortion after fetal heartbeat detection uh, at six weeks. And that's law. In fact, 
the uh, Ro- the law overturned in Roe v. Wade is technically now the law in Texas mm-hmm. as well. So you're going to have a hodgepodge of laws in different states. Um, you, you're going to have situations where you could have a law that had never been removed by the legislature. So let's say 1973, Roe v. Wade is decided and I'm just making up a state, let's say Nebraska had a law prohibiting abortion. Their legislature never took the time to overturn it or remove it. And then all of a sudden Roe v. Wade's overturned. Now that's the law right? after nearly 50 years. And supposing Nebraska, uh, which is a red state, a very conservative state, supposing they had a, they had a blue attorney general. right? And so the blue attorney general may say, yeah, that's the law, but I'm not going to enforce it. Right. So you've got you've got these really weird situations, or or you have states that are kind of purplish states, right? Mm-hmm. Like a Wisconsin um, or a Michigan, right? So Michigan has a governor and a attorney general that are both pro-choice, pro-abortion, uh, and yet the demographics of that state is probably leaning a little bit towards pro-life, um, and so it's not clear. You know, there that I, I, from what I've heard, is the attorney general uh, has uh, evaluated the Michigan law and said that she's not going to enforce it. I, I don't know all the details, so I don't want to spec say too much about it. But you're going to have different situations like that, uh, depending on who's in charge, what the law was before Roe, whether the law had been changed after Roe. Uh, it's just a lot of things that are going to mm-hmm. uh, kick in. One of the things I love about your work is you're not just a legal guy, you're also a philosopher. And that's what makes your, your writing so fascinating and so helpful. And just want to, to, to ask you, I, I know what answer, I think I know what answer you're going to give, but I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to hear this. But one of the, the things, of course, that has immediately happened in, in the wake of the Dobbs decision is that the focus has gone to victims of rape and incest. And there is the, the, the tale of the 10-year-old girl in Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. There's been uh, endless internet back and forth, and whether that's a true case, whatever. I mean, who knows? But clearly, victims of rape and incest are real. Uh, it is a powerful emotional argument, even if a guy like me looks on and says, that's not what abortion's really. You know, abortion is, was never about just helping girls who are victims of rape and incest to, to, to get rid of, of an unwanted pregnancy. It was never about that. But I find even, even at Grove, I gave a lecture last semester on, uh, really based on Erica Bakayoki's book, Rights of Woman, and trying to make a, mm-hmm. a case for sort of pro-life feminism, if you like. And uh, one of the questions was, what do you do about victims of rape and incest? How do you how do you answer that, Frank? Yeah, I, I think that's that that's a, a a very difficult question emotionally. Yeah. Uh, I I I'll tell you how there are different ways to respond to it. So one way that that I've responded to it when especially when I'm in a public dialogue or a conversation with somebody. In fact, I'll I'll share a, a very brief story about a conversation I had nearly 30 years ago now, when I, it was right around the time my first book on abortion had come out, uh, one called Politically Correct Death that was published by Baker in 1993. Uh, my wife was working at the Las Vegas Athletic Club and uh, as, a, as a manager, and she was getting into an argument uh, about abortion with uh, somebody who was a frequent patron of, of the club. 
And so I came in to work out and I overheard the conversation and I interceded and, and I began arguing with, with the woman who happened to be a doctor and she brought up the rape and incest cases. And I asked her, I, I said, if there were no cases of rape or incest, would you still be for abortion mm -hmm. rights? And she said, yes. And I said, then yeah. why do you bring them up? They're not right. relevant to establishing yeah. your position. And in a sense, it's a debater's point. I will concede that. Yeah. But the point of, of presenting in that, that way is, is, and this is what I went on to say to her, I said, so the real issue is whether the unborn human being is in fact a full-fledged member of the human community. If, if, if he or she is, then we can only answer the rape or incest question in light of that. Mm -hmm. Just like we would have a very difficult, uh, like, you know, we think about these difficult cases of balancing interests among adults, right? So one of the problems that I sometimes talk about in my uh, contemporary moral problems class is something called the trolley problem, uh, where, you know, there's a trolley moving down a track and you're standing by a lever. And, you, and if you don't do anything, uh, three, uh, five people will be run over. But if you pull the lever, it will move over and it will run over three. <laughs> so, so there's students have different intuitions on this because by pulling the lever, they feel they somehow cooperate with the killing of the three. But if they don't do anything, even though if more die, they're actually not involved. Right. So there's, yeah. so the point is that that doesn't, so nobody disputes that the eight people are persons, right? So, mm -hmm. so my point is that if the issue of rape or incest, if in fact the fetus is a person, then we have to wrestle with how to deal with that, yeah. given that reality. On the other hand, if the fetus isn't a person, then we don't need the argument. Right. In other words, why even... It's not necessary. Just argue the fetus isn't a person. You don't need rape. Right. Or, you don't need rape or incest cases to establish your position. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because so many of the things that, I mean, now science has made it nearly impossible, even for pro-abortion advocates, to say that uh, the unborn are not human beings. And so now they've they've made a distinction between a human being and a human person. And they distinguish being from personhood, which is a really scary place to go. Um, I just recently read, reread portions of Robert Lifton's classic, The Nazi Doctors. And that sort of language and reasoning is, is, is throughout that. Being um, without life, I think, was the Nazi. Zion, Ona, Leben. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, that article that, that you just mentioned, Carl, uh, I a couple of years ago, when I was invited to give the banquet address at a big pro-life uh, a gathering in Nebraska, and I read from that article without telling the audience where I was reading it from, and then I read something from a contemporary bioethicist, and I asked the audience, "Who's the contemporary bioethicist, wow. and who's the wow. paleo Nazi?" And uh, you know, <laughs> wow. most people picked. The paleo Nazi as the contemporary bioethicist. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm not, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't, I'm not suggesting that contemporary bioethicists are, in fact, Nazis. That's not what, I, what I'm saying. But what I, but the ideas, yeah. uh, you know, have kind of a life of their own, right? Mm -hmm. So it may be that there are people, and I don't doubt this, there are people that defend abortion rights 
who are offering arguments they sincerely believe are advancing the common good. Uh, I don't think that everyone who defends abortion rights is a bad person. I think many of them are actually quite, you know, they believe they have a noble cause. But our ideas sometimes uh, we can't control. That is, the next generation that accepts them uh, will move from uh, a right for a woman to decide to terminate her pregnancy to the government um, engaging in eugenics. Yeah. Right. Because the same kind of reasoning, the sort of first person personal eugenics idea, uh, especially if you are thinking about, let's say, a next generation that hasn't been informed by general liberal understandings of freedom, will have no problem right. <laughs> using the state to advance what they believe are in the interest of, of the, what they think is the public good. Right. So, yeah. So the, the, the personhood human distinction. Um, comes from a couple of articles that first appeared in the early 1970s by uh, a couple of philosophers, Michael Tooley and Marianne Warren and then Peter Singer. And what they argue is that they concede, yeah, the, the fetus, the unborn human being is in fact fully genetically a human being. But since it doesn't exercise certain uh, powers, like the ability to think rationally or have self-reflection or self-consciousness therefore they don't have moral status and a lot of people accepted those arguments and they never found their way by the way into courts uh but they were they're pretty dominant in, in philosophy what they entail though is that newborns aren't persons right. either yeah yeah or right. older people with alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. exactly and so most of these philosophers bite the bullet though they right. say well then we should allow infanticide Peter Singer. In yeah. that's right at 2013 there was an article published in journal of uh, of medical ethics called afterbirth abortion should the baby live and uh it was authored by uh, two italian uh philosophers um uh alberto jubilini and francesca minerva and I, it, it became a kind of internet sensation in the sense that people were scandalized by this. And those of us who have been teaching this for 20, 30 years know, well, th these aren't new arguments, but it was really the first time that the general public knew or made, or made aware that this was a kind of conventional way of thinking about human life that really dominates the bioethical literature. And so I, I was one of several people that wrote a response to Jubilini and Minerva that were that was published about a year later. Uh, but yeah, this is a view that's um, that's fairly widespread in the philosophical literature. And it seems to me to rest on a, an abstraction as well. I, 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 I give this scenario to students in class. If you, you could imagine a scenario in Princeton where our friend Robbie George and Peter Singer are late, late at night walking down. Uh, Nassau Street, and they hear a baby crying in a doorway. Uh, and I bet you any money that they would both agree on what is to be done in that situation. Mm -hmm. We need to call the police. We need to get this baby somewhere safe and warm. We need to look for the mum, or we need to find good adoptive parents. Uh, it seems that, that, that intuitively we know that this personhood theory is completely bonkers. And, and Singer himself, of course, great example of that when but his he, mother in a 
nursing cares, home. cares for his yeah. mother. And I found an interview online where the interviewer points out the inconsistency and says to him, isn't this inconsistent? And his answer is, well, I guess it's different when it's your own mother. Well, <laughs> yeah, you bet your life yeah. it is different when it's your own mother. You know? yeah. She nursed you at her breast. She put a sticking plaster on your knee when you fell over. Um, so I, I think the personhood theory, maybe it works well in a classroom in a, as an abstraction, but it simply cannot provide a philosophy of life on any level, regardless of a, your views of abortion yeah. or euthanasia. It just doesn't make sense of life as we live it. I, I think that's right. And, and I think you see that coming out in at least the past decade or so more explicitly in an area that's fairly new called disability studies. So there, there's been this kind of movement. I, I don't want to say bioethics, but certain people in bioethics have been drawn to uh, this area of study. Be, and, the, and in disability studies, the dominant view is that people should not be discriminated against because of their disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of, of, of Christian philosophers that I know have been really involved with this. Uh, in one case, uh, the gentleman that I know has been most of his life strongly pro-abortion, but because of his work in disability studies, it struck him once, well, well, wait a second, the standard yeah. fetus is in precisely the same position uh, as yeah. certain people with have, who yeah. have disabilities, with the exception of the fact that the fetus is going to, quote unquote, come out of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right, it, right. It, in fact, going to the the most virtually all cases, the unborn human being is eventually going to express in its powers, its nature. Yeah. And so I think one of the, the side effects of this personhood thinking is to say that at certain points of our existence, when we're the most dependent and the least able to exercise our natural powers, that's when we can kill us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it just seems just strange to say that, that the, that the kind of paradigm case of a human being is a healthy, young, fully gifted person. And that to me is eventually leads to some of the atrocities that we've seen in history. Right. Frank, um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more question. Um, One of the things that you'll hear, and as Carl mentioned, you think about these things as a legal scholar, you think about them philosophically, and you also think about them in Christian categories as well, because you're a Christian. Um, oftentimes you'll hear from Christians, we're against abortion. We, we would like to see it end. We don't want to change the laws though, because first everybody's hearts need to change on the issue from, from your standpoint, your perspective as a legal scholar, I wonder if you would just explain briefly to our folks, the role yeah. that law plays in helping to shape the hearts and the consciences of people. Let's look at some examples outside of abortion. So 1954, the Supreme Court issues its opinion, Brown versus the Board of Education, Mm -hmm. in which it says that school segregation uh, based on race is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And at that time in American history, if you polled most Americans, it would be overwhelmingly uh, segregation is at least permissible. Mm -hmm. Well, that case winds up generating uh, what eventually becomes the civil rights movement. Now, the civil rights movement begins obviously decades before that, but in terms of 
energizing that movement uh, and uh, giving us, you know, the cast of characters that we're all familiar with, including Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, so that case kind of brings to our to our mind the the question, one that a lot of Americans didn't want to confront, was are African Americans, are Black Americans, true full citizens in this country? And in a way, the law can mm-hmm. actually move us right. to think about that. Now, I actually think since Roe v. Wade's been overturned, which has been roughly a month, I'm shocked in a sense of a couple of things. One, I'm shocked that how unprepared the other side was for this. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's no way they could have been prepared because all of a sudden the firewall is down and people actually now have to think about something that they had never had to think about before. Yeah. Uh, think about how it's going to change. It may very well change sexual mores, right? People will think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have that backup mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore in certain states. Now, some people would say it's a bad thing, but actually it may very well be a good thing. It may actually inspire young people to be more conscientious about their own sexual powers and about their futures and having children with somebody in a permanent relationship. So who knows? But the point is that the law itself can serve as a teacher. Yeah. And I I think some of the evangelicals and Catholics and other Christians who say what you said, Todd, you know, Mm. I'm pro-life, but I hearts have to change. Uh, this is a kind of cheap whataboutism, I'll confess it. You rarely ever hear them apply that to other issues that are in ascendancy among the elites, right? right. You, never, you never hear that about, uh, let's say, issues on race or, or um, you say, gender equality, right? Yeah. You don't say, well, you know, let's just wait until people's hearts are changed, mm-hmm. right? It, it's the idea. So, no, this is a matter of justice. And we have to enforce these principles of justice and those people's hearts are going to have to change in light of that. Right. So I know the the issue of abortion is different. Uh, It's got its, you know, it's, it's, it's not obviously a a perfect parallel, but I do think we have to be, I think there's a real concern among some people that they, that they not seem out of step. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Well, obviously this is a conversation that's going to continue and, our guest has been Frank Beckwith um, of Baylor University and uh, a, a legal scholar. And, and as Carl mentioned at the beginning of our program, the author of this excellent book from Cambridge University Press, uh, Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion. It is an excellent book of, of all the resources I regularly go to um, to continue to refine my thinking and my apologetic on abortion. This is always my first go-to. This is the book. This is my first go-to. And if it's not in your library, if it's not something that you keep particularly now in these days where, where Christians need to be ready and prepared to give a good, clear, lucid answer to why we believe life needs to be fin- defended in the womb, uh, please get this book and read it. Uh, Carl mentioned earlier, it's a scholarly press. Um, Francis Beckwith is a scholar, but but he writes in a very very clear way that's very accessible in this book. And uh, really, you need you need to get this. Um, so, Frank, thanks so much for coming on with us again. You're you're one of the you're a repeat guest, and so you knew what you were getting yourself into, and you risked it anyway. 
And uh, we Thank really you. appreciate the, the conversation very much and appreciate your, your work very much. To our listeners, I would say, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, if you are uh, uh, interested in getting a copy of a new book from uh, another one of our uh, guests who's been on the program, Ryan Anderson, he and Alexandra DeSantis have uh, uh, authored, and it's just been released, a book entitled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Uh, we would encourage you to go to our website to, to enter to win a, a copy of this book. Um, it's, it's just been released. I'm about halfway through it, and it's going to be added to my must-reading list of, of, of those resources you need to go to uh, to be equipped for the coming uh, and current debate. And while you're at our website, if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, we would encourage you to do that as well. So until then, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll be with you next time. Having my baby What a lovely way of saying how much you love me Having my baby Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. become increasingly at the mercy of others for the fuel on which our entire economy runs. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth and it is a warning. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Today, tomorrow, and into the next century, our nation is the enduring dream of every immigrant who ever set foot on these shores and the millions still struggling to be free. This nation, this idea called America was and always will be a new world. I will never forget the parents of children with autism and other serious conditions who told me on the campaign trail that they couldn't afford health care and couldn't qualify their children for Medicaid unless they quit work and starved or got a divorce. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. My fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you about what the United States will do with our friends and allies to degrade and ultimately destroy the terrorist group known as ISIL. My original instinct was to pull out, and historically,
I like following my instincts. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together and make no mistake. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. For many churches, the sacraments hold little significance. Others assign them an unbiblical purpose or meaning. Gain a Reformed perspective on the sacraments of the church. Join the pastor professors of Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary for the 2022 Westminster Conference, September 9th and 10th near Pittsburgh, PA. It's the Westminster Standards and the Means of Grace. The sacraments as holy signs and seals of the covenant. Keith Evans, Richard Gamble, Jeffrey Stuyvesant, David Whitla, C.J. Williams, and Barry York explore the sacraments as a mark of the church. The essential insights of Calvin, Lord Warriston, and more. Friday evening and Saturday morning, September 9th and 10th at Providence Presbyterian Church in McKees Rocks, PA. Learn more or register now online at rpts.edu slash events. rpts.edu slash events. The 2022 Westminster Conference, sponsored in in part by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.